Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to Bad Axe Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Blinka. And I'm your co-host, Aaron. Bad Axe is brought to you by the Podmoth Media Network. Check out Podmoth for more great podcasts. You can support the show and get an entire year's worth of bonus episodes over at patreon.com backslash Pod. There is a link in our show notes and membership start at just $1. You can also support the show for free by leaving us a positive review and telling a friend about us. We actually have an exciting announcement today, y'all. We are going to our first convention as a podcast. Yay! Yay! Now, I know a lot of you follow us on Instagram or some other social media site, so you probably know about this, but we are super excited to tell you, and if you would like to, you can come see us on Saturday, July 16th and Sunday, July 17th at Conclusa in Houston, Texas. The convention is held downtown in the George R. Brown Center and it's got something for everyone, and I know that it will have at least one thing for all of y'all, because we will be there, and you can come see us. I know that we're doing a panel on Sunday. We just found out that yesterday, and we're also going to be doing a live show, and our topic is going to be really interesting. It has to do with crime, but it's also appropriate for the convention, and I think that everyone is going to really like hearing what we have to say about this topic that I am keeping a secret. I think it should be a secret for now, but I'm sure you'll find out before the actual convention happens. Hopefully, we will see you there. We are so excited. Now, let's get to today's case. Before we start, I'm going to break this into two parts because we're not doing just one case today. That would be so basic. No, we are doing five cases. Five. Yes. But two of them are incredibly small. One of them is kind of small. There's only two that are like really big. And what happened was, is this week, just being honest with all the exciting things happening with the podcast, and finally, some good stuff has happened in our lives, which is great. We've been having a pretty good 2022 after that initial like horrible start with my mom passing and everything, but some good stuff has happened. And I didn't really have a lot of time this week, and I thought I'm going to try to do something shorter, but then I picked something incredibly complicated because the case that I found for us turned out to have a whole bunch of related cases because we are actually doing a case that happens in Salem, Massachusetts that takes place in this apartment complex that apparently is really creepy. And what's weird is I couldn't find anything that talked about how creepy this apartment complex is, even though I kept finding all these cases. When I was looking to find out about the apartment complex itself, you know, just like where it is and what it looks like, all these other cases were popping up and I was like, I'm sorry, is this the creepiest apartment complex that's ever existed? And for context, and I'm going to put a picture of it on our socials so that you will see how it looks. It really doesn't look like an apartment complex. It looks like when you're watching a horror movie and they go to like an old asylum or something or an old hospital that's supposed to be haunted. That's more what it looks like, at least to me. 
And Aaron has seen a picture of it, so he knows what I'm talking about. It does look like that. It's really creepy. And so, and there's also even more creepy things that I've learned about it. So, unfortunately, for some of our more serious people, we are talking about very real crimes that have very real causes, and we are not speculating about any kind of paranormal things. Except for, I can't help but mention some paranormal coincidences that happened. If that makes sense. Absolutely. So I feel like this case is going to be really interesting if you like anything supernatural, but it will still be interesting if you don't, because we, from the beginning of the podcast, have always been interested in cases that have any kind of supernatural element. Like if someone thinks somebody's a werewolf or something, we're like really on that. Our first case was about some friends that tried to turn their friend into a vampire. They did not do it, obviously. <laughs> That's not how this works. But <laughs> but it's something that we're interested in just because there's just so many things out there that, I don't know, it's just, it's just weird. And even though we're not exactly entertained, it's just interesting to see where people deviate. You know what I mean? And I feel like this is just a place where people deviate. People think that they see werewolves or they think that their friend is a goblin or whatever it is. It's just interesting. And in this case, no one is doing anything because they think something supernatural has happened. And yet the circumstances are just strange. So let's talk about this. And again, if you're the type of person who's listening to this and thinking, I really hate it when people try to blame stuff on the supernatural. I promise we are not going to do that. All right. Do not leave because you're worried that I'm going to be like, it was ghosts this whole time. It wasn't. I promise. (laughs) There were no ghosts involved. It was people. It was people this whole time. But there were some coincidences. So today we are going to Salem, Massachusetts for a series of cases that span decades. They all take place in a single apartment complex located at 12 Pope Street in Salem. Let's talk about Salem first, just briefly. Salem is located on the coast of northern Massachusetts. It's a small city with only about 44,500 residents, but it's also super popular as a tourist destination. It is the well-known site of the Salem Witch Trials in 1692, although that's kind of a misnomer because the trials actually happened in Salem Village, which is now called Danvers, Massachusetts. And a lot of people might know this because it's become more popular as people talk about the Salem Witch Trials. There was a Salem town that is Salem as we know it today that was more bigger and more cosmopolitan. And then there was Salem Village, which is now Danvers. And that's actually where the witch trials took place. However, the actual current city of Salem definitely gets into the witch vibes. Their nickname is the Witch City, and they are all about this. They're leaning into it, huh? Yeah, they lean into it. And also, they are loosely connected to Salem Village. And some of the sites are technically in Salem, which we will talk about in a moment, including one that's very famous that is relevant to this case. Nice. So this is definitely, you know, something that when you think of Salem, you think witches. And a lot of people actually go on witch tours and there's a lot of witchy shops and stuff in Salem. And there's all that excitement. There's also the movie Hocus Pocus takes place in Salem. That's right. A lot of exciting witch things happening. During the witch hysteria, which occurred in 1692, at least 200 people were accused of witchcraft. And a lot of this has been blamed on things like land disputes or possibly 
rye bread that was making people hallucinate things and have various symptoms that mirror psychosis. Who really knows? We won't ever, I guess, fully know what happened in Salem. But 30 of the people who were accused were actually convicted of witchcraft at a trial, which is a lot. Yes, it is. That's a lot of people to be victims of this hysteria. In total, the Salem community executed 19 accused witches by hanging, and another five victims died in jail. And famously, Giles Corey also died in the witch hysteria, but he was crushed to death by stones because he refused to confess to witchcraft. Salem is also home to a lot of historic homes and buildings, so you can basically go hog wild doing history tours in Salem. And one day, I am going to do just that. I feel like every time I hear about Salem, I think to myself, I wonder how much it costs to live in Salem. I have been reading this series of cozy mysteries that takes place in Salem called The Witch City Mysteries, and I love them. They're by Carol J. Perry. I think her middle name is Jay. And if you like cozy mysteries, I recommend them. There's a fat orange cat. And if you have ever creeped on my Instagram, you'll know that I have two very fat, very orange cats. (laughs) So though my two original cats are fat orange cats. And Cats B is basically the exact same as the cat in the book. That's true. Whose name is Orion. They're like the same cat. I promise. So just if you want to read that book. There's a bunch of them. They're really good. I promise. Anyway. So, Salem is a cool place to visit, and one of the old buildings near downtown Salem is an apartment complex that sits at the top of a winding driveway surrounded by lush greenery. That driveway is diagonally across the street from Proctor's Ledge, which is thought to be the site where the witchcraft trial victims were hanged by the townspeople. And there's actually a memorial at Proctor's Ledge for the victims of the Salem witch trials because of the fact that this is where historians have decided that the people were being hanged at this time in history. Now, this particular memorial is located at 7 Pope Street, while our apartment complex, which is called the Salem Heights, is located at 12 Pope Street. So pretty close by. Yeah, like it's literally diagonally across the street, but there's a really long driveway that kind of goes up to the apartment complex. I don't know how people don't have, like, a whole blog or website about how that's creepy. I mean, it it literally has, like, a whole horror movie aesthetic. And as I was, I was accidentally stumbling upon this, because I just happened to find a case that took place there. That's what started all this. And now I'm, like, fully in a whole rabbit hole on this thing. I just looked at the building like, this is, wow, this is really spooky. And nobody's talking about how spooky this building is. And then you have this driveway. It's like, When you're watching any kind of horror movie, they always drive up the long driveway to get to the place, you know? And then it's right across the street. That's crazy. From the execution site. That's wild. And then all of these deaths are going to occur there? That's spooky. Now, is it a coincidence? Yes. But (laughs) is it spooky also? Yes. Indeed. It's weird. And so, anyway, whereas I normally don't do this, I feel like if you're listening to this for the first time, and this is your first episode, I don't know if I would start here because you're going to think, wow, this podcast is about supernatural stuff. No, it's not. But in this one case, it kind of is. Except for, again, it's people. People did this. The Salem Heights apartment complex is a historic 12-story red brick building that reminds me of an old hospital in a horror movie. 
If the reviews left by tenants are true, that's not too far from the truth. Because in the past, they've complained about things like dilapidated apartments and mice infestations that go unaddressed. Several people have complained that murderers and sex offenders live there, which is accurate, both because murders have occurred in this apartment. Yeah. And also because I actually did see some listings for some sex offenders that were living there. So essentially, it's got a lot going on here at this apartment complex. And it is really big. I told you it was 12 stories. You can tell there's a lot of apartments in there. And they have it set up to be a place for affordable housing. So some of the apartments cost market rate, but some of them are subsidized heavily by the government. So a lot of different people live there, which is normally I would consider to be like a good thing, you know, like, yay, we're, we're making sure that people are getting opportunities and access and things like that. But unfortunately, in this particular building, it has not resulted in a perfect scenario, partially because there has been some crime that has entered the building as a result of this, not because of all of the people, you know, like lots of people are doing awesome stuff despite having low economic means, but a few of them had low economic means because they were struggling to not do crimes, essentially. And so that has, you know, introduced some problems into the building. Ironically, not fully what's going to cause the problems that we're going to see today. So interesting. Despite these problems that may or may not be occurring, according to tenants, the location is really nice. It's less than a mile from downtown Salem, and it even features views of historic Salem and also parts of, like, the bay if you're looking out the windows, which is pretty cool. So, like, you can look out the window of your apartment and see this, like, really beautiful view. It's also pretty close to Salem's beaches, so it's in a very desirable location. So, Mm. that's a pro For the apartments. Absolutely, yeah. All right. Now, let's go to our first case. Our first case happened in January 1992. And because it's so old, there aren't a lot of sources about it. I actually found it by accident because I fell down this rabbit hole and became obsessed with the Salem Heights apartments. We mostly know what happened because Unsolved Mysteries covered it. (laughs) Yeah. For reals, people. Our favorite show. Our, we used to love Unsolved Mysteries. Although, yeah. I will say Unsolved Mysteries is the root of my incredible fear of, of aliens. <laughs> like, I'm, I feel like I've gotten better. Yeah. Obviously, as Earth teeters toward disaster, my friends, the aliens, become more and more, uh, I Friendly. guess, desirable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know what you mean, though. Because, like, I like aliens a lot. And I, I don't have the same phobia of them as you do. But I, I have memories from... Uh, you know, watching Unsolved Mysteries when mm-hmm. I was younger and th- thinking that they were really creepy. Yeah. And so, like, like I definitely understand that vibe because, like, they made the aliens seem creepy. At least as to a young person, they were very creepy. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings from haunted houses to castles bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. For reals, so the problem was is that all their stories lined up, which I know now as an adult, 
could be because they were all copying each other. Although it also could be because they were all abducted by aliens. We will never know. And I was petrified of aliens as a child. Like, it was legitimately a bad phobia. Like, I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of movies because of it, including, for some reason, Jurassic Park. And my brother (laughs) got to watch Jurassic Park, but I was not allowed. And I'm not really sure how that relates to to aliens. But, okay, that was my parents' rule. I guess I'll never know because I don't think my dad's going to remember making that rule. But (laughs) I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of things. I've never seen the movie Alien. I watched Signs as an adult. Only because I watched one of the scary movie movies that makes fun of it. And I was like, I don't understand any of this. (laughs) Yeah, so who knows? Anyway, you are not here for aliens. You are here to find out about Gail Knowlton. So back in January 1992, 33-year-old Gail Knowlton lived in the Salem Heights apartments with her husband. Now, her husband happened to be a paraplegic. And so she had to do a lot of care for him because he was struggling to care for himself. She also had a 16-month-old son named Nicholas that she had to take care of. She had other children as well, but she did not have custody of them any longer. And that's because they lived with her ex-husband. And part of the reason why they lived with her ex-husband is because she had some allegations against her that she was on probation for that had to do with her kids. So it's unclear what they were because those were not released to the public, but essentially she did something that the court was upset about with her kids. So possibly some kind of like neglect or something like that. Right, yeah. So she had these kids that were not living with her and so she was completely focused on Nicholas and her husband. On the morning of January 21st, 1992, Gail left her home in the Salem Heights to go to her job at the Sears Credit Bureau. However, she never arrived at work that day. In fact, there has been no sign of Gail for the past 30 years. She just disappeared? Yeah, she completely disappeared. Wow. She asked why she was on Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. Her mystery has never been solved. Spoilers. (laughs) However, after her disappearance, neighbors told police that they had heard loud arguing coming from her apartment. However, the police went inside the apartment and looked around and said they didn't see any sign of a crime. And to be fair, it would be really hard for her husband to have, like, gotten completely rid of any trace of her. Because he's a paraplegic. Yeah, and, like, that doesn't mean that he has, like, no ability to do anything. But he was in her care, so it sounds like his particular problem, health-wise, was a little more on the extreme side. And then they also had this baby, but the baby was little, so the baby's not going to help cover up a murder. So it would be extremely difficult for him to have killed her and then gotten completely rid of the body without any kind of assistance. Yeah, absolutely. So the police looked around. They didn't really see anything that indicated he had done anything. And so even though they had heard these fights and things, they didn't really think that he had anything to do with this. After years of searching, though, the police decided that they needed to look for a new way to get leads. And this is where Unsolved Mysteries comes in because they didn't just consult Unsolved Mysteries. That might not have actually gotten them on there because even though she was missing, you know, she wasn't as compelling of a story as some of the other people because there were some people who thought that she just ran away because they were like, well, you know, she's the only one working. She has these two people to take care of. She did have a documented history of not being the best mom. Maybe she just was like, fuck this, I'm leaving. Yeah. So that was floated as an idea. And so as a result, you know, this wasn't normally the type of missing persons case that you would see on Unsolved Mysteries. However, the police made it Unsolved Mysteries worthy because they decided that they were going to consult a local psychic 
and witch. Oh my god. Yes. Now, this psychic slash witch is named Laurie Cabot, and some people who are listening could recognize her name because she's actually fairly famous. She's a high priestess who's written a lot of books about witchcraft, and she lives in Salem. And at the time, she also operated an occult store there, but that store is now closed. Although you can order from her website if you want to, because she does sell stuff online, including, obviously, her books. Officers decided that to get her help, they gave Laurie... Gail's name, age, location, and the date of her disappearance. And this was for her to connect into, like, Gail's essence, I guess, <laughs> for her to get the psychic vision. Back in the 1990s, it would be really hard for her to search this information, so I guess they felt comfortable giving it to her. Because now, if you were going to go to a psychic and you gave them that information, they would just be able to Google that. Let's be real. Yep. I mean, you could Google that, and you could have the whole story, and then you could be, oh my gosh, I'm seeing exactly where she left from, because I freaking Googled it. I know, right? And I personally am really into, like, supernatural stuff. So I think that some people are psychic. It's just how I feel about the world. But I think most people who are telling us they're psychic and doing these types of things are big fat frauds. So I don't claim to have evidence either way, but that's my personal opinion. And I do think it's gross when I'm, like, looking, I'm trying to research a case and I'm looking for that person to see what kind of online information I can find or if I can find social media for them. And then I come across the real truth about so-and-so by a psychic whoever. And I'm like, don't you feel bad about yourself? They should. Like, this person is missing and their family is looking for them. And you are posting stuff online on your website to get clicks. That is messed up. Yes, it is. Anyway, so she gets this information about Gal and... Laurie Cabot says that she went into a trance-like state that she calls an alpha state. And then she claims that she saw Gail's final hours on this earth. According to her vision, she says that Gail ran into an old friend when she left her apartment that day. And this friend asked her to go on a drive with him and she said yes. This male friend drove her to New Hampshire. And even though they were going to New Hampshire and not to her job, Gail was having a fun time with her friend at first. But then the friend pulled out a knife and started cruelly teasing her with it. Eventually, this friend pulled over on Dolly Cop Road at the base of Mount Washington in New Hampshire, and he ordered Gail out of the car. Gail did get out, but she complained of the cold because it was January. And she asked the friend to quit messing around. Instead, he pushed her down the embankment. Dun-dun-dun. Cabot said that Gail died from either the fall down the embankment or exposure after the fall because of the cold weather. However, no proof of this was ever found, and the police actually did go out there and look for evidence at this site and did not find any evidence or any kind of, like, body or remains or clothes or just anything. So, yeah. So they put out Unsolved Mysteries, and it's unclear if the Unsolved Mysteries' purpose was to find Gail or just to showcase that a psychic was helping with a murder case or missing persons case, as you have it. Yeah. Yeah, so ironically, this particular Unsolved Mysteries episode was not released to the streaming services, and so you can't go watch it. Like, it just skips over it. It was episode four of, I think, season nine, but if you go look at episode four of season nine, it's a later episode from season nine. They just did not release this one. Hmm. Maybe they just didn't want to. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's weird. It's a bummer, though. Now, Gail has never been found, and some people think she was a victim of foul play. Others think that she ran away, and maybe she even met another man. And so, 
you can still look for her. If you want to go look at her profile, it's on NamUs. There's not a lot of information about her, but she was 33 when she disappeared. I believe she would be about 63 now. She was 5'7", and at the time she disappeared, she was around 110 to 150 pounds. And she had brown hair and brown eyes. Although, most likely her hair would have turned gray by now. But, who knows, maybe she dyes it. It could be any color, really. So, maybe Gail is still out there. If you're listening, Gail, maybe tell us where you are. Because, you know, your son has grown now. You could totally meet him. That'd be cool. That would be cool. And also, I think it would be fun for you to just, like, prove that this embankment story didn't happen. That would be cool. It'd also be cool if she was alive just in general, yeah. Yeah, just it's always nice when someone's not dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> points. And I kind of felt bad because I told everyone, this isn't going to be Supernatural related. And then technically this one is, but I feel like this is a really Salem story. And I'm mostly including it because it's related to this apartment complex. I don't believe that this psychic vision has anything to do with what happened to Gail. I think that there's one of two possibilities. I think either A, she really did run away. And I think that's certainly a possibility because she does seem to have had a troubled past with her kids. And then also, you know, her life was hard. She was the breadwinner. She was taking care of two people. And I think that that could be her breaking point. But I do find it hard to believe that she would have been able to stay gone this long without anyone noticing. Because she was on Unsolved Mysteries. Surely somebody would have been like, hey... This lady looks just like Gail. So, I mean, that's how a lot of these missing persons ended up getting found that were on Unsolved Mysteries that had, like, run off and stuff. Yeah. There are other people who have been on shows like that. I think there was one that was on that Disappeared show that was found because they were on a show about their crime and somebody recognized them. Because it wasn't a crime, they just left. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be hard for her to stay gone this long with no trace. Yeah, totally. Um, some people do believe that she was discovered dead, though, and that they just didn't tell everybody because of whatever reason. But I think the other more likely explanation is that somebody in the building did something to her. Because they know that they have criminals that live in this building, and so I don't think it's that far of a stretch that one of them could have attacked her. Yeah, I don't think it is either. I don't Mm -hmm. think that's a stretch at all. I think that's far more likely than this weird New Hampshire story. Yeah, Anyway, although I'm not claiming to have any sort of visions on that, but I'm just saying that sounds more likely. So that is the first incident, and that's the only one that's going to be, like, officially having any kind of supernatural storyline to it, which, again, we don't think that that's what happened. But still, technically, there was a psychic involved. I don't think she's very good at it. No offense, Laura Cabot, but that sounds like Banana's vision, but whatever. Today, we bask in the light of mustachioed greatness. Hi, this is Daniel Segura, host of the Mustachioed Podcastio. You like mustaches? You like movies? You like sexy chinganos? Well, the Podcastio is the place for you. We are talking legendary mustaches from Charles Bronson to the Great Bird Reynolds to the OG Ice T. Find the Mustachioed Podcastio anywhere you listen to podcasts. That is M O U S T A S H I O D Podcastio. So our next incident I found happened in May 2009, and this one is just really bad. So it's just sad. No ghosts, no witches, no psychics, nothing. Just straight evil dude. Although the word evil, that's making me think the scale evil. The word, <laughs> the word evil is overused in crime cases. He's just a bad person. Okay, so let's get into this. We're in May 2009. 
42-year-old Yulia Galperina immigrated to the United States from Ukraine before 2009 in the hopes of creating her best life in a new country. After living in Wisconsin for a while, she eventually settled in Salem, Massachusetts with her son and daughter. And that's her younger son and daughter because she actually had older children. Yulia worked as a nurse's aide, but her children were her main focus. Her neighbors describe her as quiet and as being a very dedicated mom. And I think this is definitely true about her because as we'll see, she had an, at least one adult daughter at the time this happened and two school-aged children. And she was also pregnant with her third child. And she was really, really excited about this third child. So she'd been having kids for like a good 20 years at this point. Or actually more because her daughter was older than 20. Yeah. So she'd been having kids for a while and was still actively having them. And so I think it was true that she really was just all about having kids because that just is what she loved was being a mom. Absolutely, yeah. Yulia also had a creative side, though. She actually loved puppets and she made them. She made puppets. That's cool. Yeah, and there's record of her donating puppets. When she was in Wisconsin, she had actually moved out of one of her houses. And when she did that, she donated a bunch of marionettes to a local children's theater and she'd made these marionettes for herself for and for her kids so that they could do, like, puppet shows. And then there's also records of her having contributed to the Puppet Showcase Theater once she moved to Massachusetts. And that Puppet Showcase Theater is located in Brookline, Massachusetts. And so it's clear that she had this really big passion for making puppets and was really good at it because these puppets were being used in professional shows, which is pretty cool. By 2009, Yulia was in a committed two-year-long relationship with 45-year-old Peter Ronchi, who worked as a massage therapist. She lived in a two-bedroom apartment in the Salem Heights complex with her eight-year-old son, Mark, and her three-year-old daughter, Marina. And she was expecting her third child, whom she'd already named David. Now, it doesn't look like Peter Ronchi lived with her because he was from a different city. And also, he was a massage therapist, but he was very rich because he had a trust fund. Or he had a family trust fund that he had access to that had over a million dollars in it. And so, he had access to a lot of money. Wow. Yeah. She, again, had dedicated her life to her children. And part of the reason for that is because Yulia's daughter, Marina, had autism. And so she had to do a lot of extra stuff for her. And she went out of her way to give Marina all the support that she needed. By May 2009, Yulia was on the cusp of starting a new chapter in her life. Her adult daughter, who was 26 and named Yevgenia, even planned to travel to Salem to help her mother in the early weeks of her baby brother David's life. Her daughter lived in another city, but it wasn't that far away. It was close enough for her to be able to, like, travel there and, like, help out after the birth. At eight and a half months pregnant, Yulia was almost ready to give birth to her third child. And although she was ecstatic, her son Mark, who was eight, later told authorities that her boyfriend Peter was less than thrilled about the baby. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, so he was not wanting to have this child with her. And Yulia just thought that eventually he would come around, but apparently... He did not. Now, the couple had another setback in the meantime because Yulia got sick at the end of her pregnancy. And according to neighbors, she was sick enough that she needed oxygen. Oh, wow. Yeah, so she was using an oxygen machine for the last few weeks of her pregnancy. And this was a real struggle for her because, you know, she wasn't able to work. She wasn't able to, like, care for herself and her kids as much. And she was really relying on Peter to step up. And unfortunately, he did not want to step up. 
he was really wanting more to step down. <laughs> yeah. Like, he was committed to her, but also not really, apparently, because he did not want to have a feeling with her. Yeah. That's that's really sad. Mm-hmm. She was only a week away from giving birth when everything in her life fell apart on Saturday, May 16th, 2009. That night, her boyfriend turned completely dark. When eight-year-old Mark woke up the next morning on Sunday, May 17th, 2009, his life changed forever because, like every morning, he climbed out of bed and crossed to his bedroom door to start his day. But when he opened the door of his room, he saw a horrifying sight. His mother lay deceased on the floor of the living room, bleeding from wounds to her side, back, and chest, and neck. Oh, no. Yeah, in total, she had 14 stab wounds. Dude. The boy started crying, obviously. Yeah. And this drew his sister's attention to their mother's deceased body. And together, the children welled. And they actually went into the hallway to start looking for someone to help them. So they're like wandering the, the hallways of this apartment complex, just wailing. And a guy who had slept over at his friend's apartment down the hall actually hurt him. And his name was Albaro Espinal. He told officers later that he heard the cries echoing along the apartment hallways that morning. And he was actually about to enter an elevator. And that's when he finally saw the two kids appear. And so he went to them because he's a good dude. And they asked him for help. And so he just followed them back to their apartment. And inside, he saw the prone form of their mother. And she was, of course, covered in blood. And so Albaro went ahead and checked for a pulse, but he did not feel one. And so he got his friend and they called 911 to get help for the mother and children, even though it was too late. Both Yulia and her baby died. Oh. Yeah, and if you recall, David, the baby, was about to be born. Like, he was a full-term baby. Yeah. So, like, people were very upset about this because, you know, like... Of course. Literally, if he would have been born, he could have survived. Exactly, yeah. Police arrived on the scene at around 7.30 a.m. that morning and started their investigation by interviewing the children and Albaro, as well as neighbors who heard the children screaming. Yulia's eight-year-old son told police that his mother's agonizing screams woke him up in the middle of the night. However, he did not recognize her voice. Because of the way she was screaming, like that primal scream of like fighting for your life, he didn't notice that that was his mom. He just knew there was screaming coming from somewhere. And he just accepted that and decided that he was going to just go to sleep again. Yeah, like he just didn't, he just didn't, <laughs> yeah, he just didn't know what was going on. And yeah. that, like, I can understand that, like, you know, as the police pieced together the events from the night before, they identified a main suspect, Yulia's boyfriend, Peter Ronchi. Authorities determined that Ronchi stabbed Yulia to death with a hunting knife out of frustration that she was about to give birth to the baby. After the crime, she, he washed up and changed out of his bloody clothes. He left behind his clothes and shoes, which police later recovered. So it wasn't that hard to be like, I think it's him. Yeah, <laughs> like you leave behind a red flag. You might as well just like leave behind a note that's like, hey, I killed I killed her, you know. Yeah, look, I'm the murderer. Yeah. Then, after he took off his clothes and took the shower, he left the apartment in his Mazda wagon, which is a minivan. <laughs> I know, I was confused. I was like, what is this? It's some kind of minivan, everyone. And he drove across the state to try to get away. He later told authorities that he planned to end his life 
but then changed his mind after he realized how it would affect his own two children. Because he had two children that were separate from hers. So now he's thinking about other people. He's pretending to. (laughs) We all know he's pretending. He eventually ended up in Norwalk, Connecticut, where he ran out of gas. And rather than filling up his tank, he opted to buy a bicycle at the local Walmart, along with some survival supplies, and his new plan was to ride to New York and live on his family's farm up there. Really? Yeah, he full (laughs) spiraled, y'all. Like, he went on a hard spiral. Yeah, that is a terrible plan. I know. I feel like I need more information about this plan just because, like, the pivots. Yeah. I mean, he's clearly having some kind of a breakdown. I guess that's what happens after you murder your baby's mother and your baby. You just spiral and you're like, I know, I'll just leave my van here at the Walmart. No one's going to notice it here. No one's going to go check the video. It's 2009, so there's definitely going to be surveillance footage. No one's going to check this footage of me buying a bicycle and survival supplies and think, hmm, I wonder where he is. No one's going to go think to to check on my family's properties in New York. I'll just live out there in a tree or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I feel like remember when you were kids and we all read that book. I think it's the I think it's called Hatchet, where the kid lives in the tree, the like the hole in the tree. And then for like a whole year after you read that book, you think I could totally live in a hole in a tree. That's gonna be my new plan in case I'm mad at my parents. I'm gonna go live in this hole. Everything's gonna be fine. I think that that is what he had in that moment as a grown man. Wow. But I mean. There was no mention of tree holes, but I'm just going to speculate on that one. (laughs) I feel uncomfortable speculating about the tree hole. All right. Maybe that was just me reading Hatchet. Maybe I'm the only person who thought I could live in a tree. I don't know. Who knows? Anyway, the bicycle plan did not work out for long. Surprise. He actually (laughs) changed his own mind again. I guess because riding a bicycle is hard. Probably, especially if you're trying to ride all the way to upstate New York. Yeah, that would be hard for Massachusetts. There's more elevation there. Like, if you're not used to it, it's going to be difficult. Yeah, and even if you are, I think that's going to be difficult. Yeah, for reals. Like, especially if you're, like, just on the run from the law on a bicycle trying to make it up into the wilderness. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. There's, it's it's almost humorous. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, if like, there wasn't a horrific murder that involved yeah, a child, yeah. then it would be somewhat funny that he's doing this. Yeah, that's why I said almost. Yeah, you know? but since there is a murder, it's not funny. And yeah. And he's just a dumbass. Exactly. And a terrible person. Who hopefully got caught with yeah. his bad plan. Well, he did. He caught himself, actually, because later that same day, he showed up at a local police station in, in North, Norwalk, and he was on his bicycle. Surprise. And he was crying. And he told an officer there that he'd had a horrible dream. It was a dream, Aaron. <laughs> and that he feared that this dream might be true. And he thought that he had stabbed his girlfriend to death. He claimed that the reason why he had stabbed his girlfriend to death is that Yulia told him the baby wasn't his. And that he just lost it in a fit of rage. And according to Officer Russell Ouellette, Rauchy asked for help. Officers say that they believed his story, even though it was crazy. Not the part about the dream, but about the murder. To be clear, they didn't think that he dreamed it. They thought he did it. And they said because he was acting really weird. And so they were like, we could start by searching his minivan, right? So they go out to his minivan and they search it. And inside, they found the six-inch hunting knife that he used to kill Yulia. And they were like, okay, well, that's a murder weapon. Straight to jail. Yeah, we're going to arrest you now because we think you murdered someone. And when he went before the court, Judge Richard Morey ordered that he be held without bail. Later, 
he consented to extradition back to Salem in exchange for a $5 million bond. And you're probably thinking, that's a huge bond. But remember, his family has a lot of money. Yeah. Plus, he just went, he did go on the run after he committed the crime. Yeah. Oh, it should I mean, be high for real. It, it wasn't like a very great escape, but he tried to make an yeah, escape. Yeah, he did you know? try. So he's a flight risk. An effort was made. Yeah. I mean, he's not going to get far on his bicycle. I know, right? <laughs> but, I mean, next time he might use his family's money to get on a plane for a Yeah, for know? realsies. Yeah. So they had him on this bond. Raunchy went on trial for killing both Yulia and baby David in November 2012. And the defense argued that Raunchy snapped after Yulia told him that baby wasn't his. And in his version of events... That night, he and Yulia were arguing about whether or not they should vaccinate their baby. Now, if you recall, people who are close to the couple, including Yulia's son, Mark, all said that he just did not want the baby. Yeah. But now, all of a sudden, he's really caring about the vaccination records, even though the baby's not born yet. I think that he said that just because that is something that polarizes people. And so I feel like he tried to make himself look better in a way by taking either side, honestly. So he says they were arguing about the vaccines. And then Julia also was telling him that she did not feel comfortable with his older children meeting the baby right away. And as a result of this, the fight spiraled out of control. And Ronchi announced that he was leaving her over this and the baby. But don't worry, everyone. He was going to send her child support. Oh, what a hero. Yes. So according to him, though, after she found out, after he told her this, that he would send her child support, she snapped back with, quote, don't bother. It's not yours, unquote. Right. I'm sure that's exactly how it happened. And then he snapped because he believed it instantly. It was like, I must murder you. What a believable story he's yeah, put together. this doesn't sound fake at all. I know. The defense argued that he suffered from mental illnesses and was neurodivergent. They also asked the jury for a manslaughter conviction rather than murder. So, like, all these depressions and anxieties are responsible for him murdering her. But that's not how that works. No, he also, he stabbed her 14 times and included in her stomach to make sure the baby died. Like, let's be serious. He stabbed her in her side and stomach in addition to her neck and her back. Yeah, that's not an accident. Yeah, he for sure was trying to kill that baby. Yeah. That's messed up. It's messed up. Yeah, that's not manslaughter. Mm -mm. Mm Mm-mm. No, I don't believe you, sir. However, the prosecution, which also does not believe him, argued that Ronchi must have planned the attack because he had a hunting knife with him. Yup. And they claimed that his motive was just not wanting the baby. They pointed out that Ronchi actually spent the evening that day, right before he went over there to argue with her, with another woman. Oh. Yeah, and this woman's name was Susan. And she did testify at the trial, and she said that they were just friends, but he also had never told her that he had a girlfriend or that his girlfriend was pregnant. Yup. That's classic dude making bad decisions yeah like he was for sure trying to get with her yeah he was like susan dodged a bullet but still he was for sure macking on susan yeah yeah and he was doing that thing that some guys do where they pretend like they're friends with you but they're really just hoping to get with you that whole time yeah he was for sure doing that that's why he did not tell her he had a girlfriend exactly people are keeping your, your partner secret then there's a red flag there The prosecution also, just in case you were wondering, decided that they were going to go ahead and do a DNA test on David because that way they could use it as a trial to kind of present whether or not it's his baby. Right. And lo and behold, the DNA test confirmed that Ranji was in fact 
the father of baby David. You are the father. Yeah, they didn't have Mari announce it, but they should have. I know, right? Because like, I feel like this is some Mari level behavior. It's it like is. worse. It's like it's like even worse. It's yeah. like a. It's like if Maury did like a an investigation a cro- discovery show. Exactly, like if he did like a crossover investigation discovery show, where it's like much darker and grittier. Yeah, you know what I mean, like, and it's this nonsense. Yeah, yeah. So that happened. Now, as further proof of premeditation, prosecutors pointed out to some weird stuff that Ronchi did the days before this crime happened. So one of the things that he did is that he excluded baby David from a family trust that was worth a million dollars. Oh, wow. Yeah, just and his other kids were part of it. He just didn't want David in it. So that's kind of a red flag. It is. Also, they say that he wrote some checks. He wrote some checks to his ex and then also to fund his children's private school. Like his other children, like his, his like first children. Yeah. So they thought that was weird. Like he was planning on something happening by doing this. Yeah. Like, like it sure, wasn't out of character. Right. Yeah, exactly. And at the conclusion of the trial, the jury found him guilty of first degree murder for both of these victims, good. which is exciting. Yeah, that's very good. And he received two life sentences for the crimes. And like baby David was treated as like just a regular murder because in Massachusetts at the time it was legal to prosecute someone for a baby that was viable after like if he had been born and so, and if he would be because he was literally a, like a full term baby so yeah I mean it make it makes sense yeah know? it makes total sense definitely and so he was sent to jail for life yay after the crime Mark and Marina went to live in different homes which I thought was sad because they were you know brother and sister and I grew up together yeah Mark went to live with his bio father in Florida and Marina went to live with an adoptive family that had experience in raising a child with special needs which I thought was especially sad because she had a mom who was doing that she had a mom who was you know making sure that she had everything she needed and was getting to grow up with her family, but because that mom was cruelly murdered by a freaking asshole, she had to go live with a different family because her bio family didn't feel up to raising her, which I'm not judging them for that. Like, you know, maybe they weren't and they were just trying to do the right thing for her. We all know. Yeah. But it just is sad for the kids. It is. It's very sad. And also that they had to have this memory that where they found their mom. It's yeah. just disgusting. That's, I mean, that's the sort of thing that you'll never really forget or get over, I feel mm-hmm. like. I mean, obviously I've never had that memory, but yeah. gratefully, you know. And it's also hard for her, her daughter, the older daughter, the adult daughter, because she had a lot of what-if moments when she's obviously not at fault for any of this. And I don't think there's anything that she could have done to prevent this because I think that Peter Ronchi would have figured out a way to kill her regardless. Yeah, he would have. And I mean, as long as he was allowed around Yulia, he would have found a way to do this. But her daughter was supposed to actually be in town at the time the murder happened. But she had had to stay behind. She had to delay her trip because... Her, I believe her husband's grandfather had died and they went to the funeral and she was like helping him. And so it was just kind of like a last minute delay that she wasn't anticipating. And so then, you know, that just so happens to be the time that Peter Ronchi, you know, takes advantage and then murders her mom. And so, you know, that that's a hard thing to deal with of like, oh, what if I'd been there? But I really don't think there's anything that would have changed. I think he would have either moved up his plan or he'd have done it a different way, you know, like lured her outside or to some kind of meeting spot or, you know, something. Or killed her too. Or killed her too. That could also have happened. Or just waited for her to go to bed. I mean... She can't stay up all night, you know? Exactly, yeah. There's like a, a bunch of different ways he could have murdered her. And I think that he was he was going to do it regardless. I don't think that her being there would have actually helped her mom yeah. with that particular situation. 
It's just depressing that this even happened. And it, I feel like pregnant women murder cases are just, they're just so, so sad. Like there's just so many of them. I just, I don't know. I know. It's, it's striking how many of them there are. And it's Mm -hmm. just, every one of them is really tragic. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's scary. I mean, I know I remarked before, like I've never been pregnant, but there's been times that I've been like, oh, if I ever get pregnant, I'm just going to keep it a secret because, (laughs) because I'm not going down for that. There's like people trying to steal your baby. There's spouses and husbands and boyfriends and everyone who's like murdering you for being pregnant because they don't want to have a baby with you. There's like mistresses who try to murder you because they're trying to steal your husband, which is not really a thing because you can't steal somebody. You know, that's not how that works. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't phrase it like that because I feel like that's the kind of language we use to blame women when it's like dudes need need to stop. Yeah. Yeah. Need to stop cheating on people. But anyway, there's like, there's so many different things that are happening and it just really becomes really dangerous and it's crazy. It's just strange that that's even a possibility. Anyway, this is a particularly horrible one though. Yes, it is. So that's our first two cases that are taking place in the Salem Heights apartments. And I'm going to tell you a little preview of our next three. Because there's three more. One of them, the next one, is the next big case. And it'll be leading off our episode. It's about a a mom who did something very bad. But fortunately, the kid survived. So, yay. (laughs) That's kind of a spoiler, I guess. But, like, they barely survived. Like, the doctors were confused about how that happened. So... It's, and it's just, there's a lot of things that are happening in this case that at first I didn't want to do it because it was kids. And I know some people get upset about the kid cases, but you have know, previously stated that I think it's sad that we like completely ignored these people's stories because we're too upset about them, I guess. But also too, like this case just has so many things that are happening in it that are just completely outrageous. Like, there's fires and all kinds of nonsense. There's a lot going on. So, I'm going to tell you about that case first. And then I have two other really mysterious, like, fall-type situations that are just like, what even happened here? This is just sort of mysterious. Yeah. So, prepare yourselves. And if you look up the building, which I highly recommend, they are doing some renovations. They started renovations in 2021. So it's like a little bit under construction. And I'm assuming they're trying to fix some of these problems that people are complaining about with like the dilapidated building and all the little issues and the infestations and whatnot. But can they change the fact that there's been this many horrible things happen? Good question. Because... Y'all, again, I know it's a coincidence. I'm not trying to to assert that this apartment complex is somehow cursed or haunted. But if I lived in the apartment complex, I would 100% be talking about ghosts and hauntings. <laughs> just being real. I'm going to be honest with you about who I am as a person. And I just feel like it's just like interesting about its proximity to this like horrific event in history where people were murdered essentially by the government, i.e. the townsfolk, for quote-unquote, being witches, which we know they weren't, that they were victims of persecution for other reasons. But it's wild that this, like, horrific, you know, deadly event occurred just, like, across the street from an apartment complex with all these, like, things happening. Yeah. And, yeah, there's other explanations. So let us know what you think about the Salem Heights apartment thing. I know it's kind of an accidental, like, left turn from our normal, just regular crime cases. Anyway, I hope that you found this topic really interesting. And we are definitely going to be talking about the other cases next week. And I hope you have a really exciting week. 
Join us on Patreon if you would like more episodes at patreon.com backslash badxpod. Also, come to Conclusa if you can here in Houston. Find us on social media at badxpod. We're on everything. And if you follow my private social media, which is, I think, linked in our Instagram, if you follow my private Instagram, which is just at Daydreams of Pretty, you can see pictures of the kittens, and they are incredibly cute. They are currently sitting in Aaron's lap after having crawled up there. <laughs> and so if you heard him being delighted and you thought, oh my gosh, why is Aaron being delighted at this horrible moment in this story? It's because there are two kittens that have chosen to sit in his lap and they worked very hard to get up there. It's adorable. So I'm actually a little jealous, except for I don't want to be clawed. Yeah, they cl- they literally clawed their entire way up my leg. They crawled it like it was a rock wall. Was it worth it? I think so. Yeah. It looks worth it. They look super cute right yeah. now. They are very cute i'm petting ash as i talk to all of you he is the cutest little baby so if you want to see the kittens you can go to my instagram and also too we might have some really exciting announcements coming up we have to get confirmation about something but a thing happened like a month ago and i did a very special interview that i can't talk about yet and so hopefully that'll be something that we get to announce soon very exciting moment for everybody and also, too, I am finally going to mail out stickers to the patrons that I have been neglecting to mail the stickers to. So if you have not received stickers and you have not sent me your address, I've got a couple of addresses in line. Please do send me your address. Even if you've been a patron forever and you never got stickers, just go ahead and let me know because I would love to send you out some stickers and all that and all that excitement because I just love all of you. We have had a crazy week, so I apologize for the fact that I split this in two. I guess technically we could have made it happen, but this week we had our air conditioner break, the house flooded, we've had all sorts of construction happening inside of our house all week long because of that. Also, I fell down the stairs because I'm goofy. I just legit just fell down our stairs. Like, I don't even know how I do this, but I have this bad problem where I fall downstairs sometimes. And I just totally, I fell and slid down on my butt. And now my butt really hurts and my leg hurts and my arms hurt. <laughs> Everything hurts because I fell on the stairs. Anyway, we are going to sign off. Aaron, do you have any final thoughts besides yay kitties? Uh, yay kitties. Uh, boo murder. We love all of you uh-huh. that are listening. Have a great week. Yeah, and contact us at badaxpot at gmail.com that I didn't tell you about. People have been doing it, so you can totally do that. Absolutely. Also, we have some case updates to tell you about. There's going to be an, an episode coming out, but the the Curiaga family murders has finally had some arrests made, so we're super excited about that. And also, Danielle Redlick, whose case we covered a while back, is on trial right now. So that trial is happening, which is super exciting. So we're keeping tabs on that, too. So we definitely need to do some updates. So look forward to some exciting case updates coming up very soon all right well we'll see you next week slash on patreon bye-bye bye